Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Greetings, comrades, and uh, welcome to the Eastern Border. This time uh, coming to you straight from the southern United States, where I have been spending some time. Spent some time in Boston in the conference, then spent a week in New York. Thank you, Sunil. Sunil was my great host with his girlfriend, Hannah, and they were just amazing people. And I, you know, looked around and visited the Roosevelt Museum, and I was in Brooklyn, and it was great. I really, really enjoyed being in New York, except that Times Square burned my eyes. Right now, I am um, experiencing a lack of my usual microphone, so I apologize because of the sound distortion and everything, but I'm using an analog mic, which is plugged into a digital adapter, which is then plugged into a micro-USB adapter, which is then plugged into a female-to-male USB port that connects it to the computer, which basically causes um, terrible echo and micro-lags in my ears, but I just want to bring out this episode for you because it's, it's an important one, and it's a subject that was given to me by a Swedish lady, a friend of Sunnel's, when we were in a bar in Brooklyn, near to the Brooklyn Museum. I don't remember the name exactly, but we're sitting there and she was talking about the ferry Estonia and its catastrophe, which is, well, second largest ferry cruise ship catastrophe on the planet. It happened in 1994 and 854 people died. And it was the 25th anniversary this year about it. And um, a lot of people still don't know exactly what happened and what were once thought as conspiracy theories have since been proven, well, basically true or extremely plausible, way more plausible than the official version. And yeah, a lot of Swedes died there, Estonians, 17 Latvians as well, and people from in total 17 nationalities. It was a huge tragedy. At the time, it was the largest ship that Estonia had. And yeah, this Swedish lady, Swedish New York lady, asked me, well, have you made an episode about that? And I thought, well, no, I haven't. And then I thought about it again and asked myself, well, why haven't I then? Because it's an interesting subject. It's a complex matter, and it's one of the biggest tragedies that has happened. And yeah, on the 27th of September, it was the exact 25th anniversary of this. And uh, also it marked a date when most recent court happening in this case, because the families of the victims are still fighting for justice, they got their claim rejected. So it's kind of important to think about all this, and especially in, in how it ties in with um, Estonian, Finnish and Swedish governments. It looks like they are uh, in a bad spot here, to say the least. 
well, it's really, really difficult to work with this mic, but <laughs> please carry through with me on, on this episode. Also, to everyone who's new to the show, thanks to Mike Duncan and the Sound Education, hello guys. And also, we have uh, signed a deal with um, T-Studio, so we'll be opening our proper t-shirt and mug and everything store shortly. And I'll be organizing the shipping for those of you who've purchased the things through them, but I'll be signing all of them, of course, so that, you know, while I'm in the United States, the shipping has been a bit laggy, but we'll get to it. We will still sell our own uh, soap thing, because we have like 1980-made Soviet soap to Moscow Olympics called Champion, which we are also more than happy to sell to you, because we have a ton of them, and, well, basically, as you know, and everyone who worked in the factory in the Soviet era stole whatever wasn't tied down, so we have a bunch of those if you want to have a nice little Soviet soap experience, which washes the capitalism right off of your skin, or, you know, you just want some, some souvenir from us. But we'll get to that at about 25th or 26th when we'll get back to Latvia. But let's get to the point, because this is one of the heaviest episodes I've made. Again, this is on the level of Chernobyl, to be exact, because the amount of dead is just staggering. And, and one of the stories that the survivors tell, and that wasn't in the sources that I checked for this episode, is that, well, a lot more people could have been saved. But as the water started getting in as you'll hear later on, from kind of the bottom parts of the ship, an air bubble formed. And so there were a lot of people who were just, you know, still alive up until the last moment, but they couldn't be saved because you had to dive in inside the ship and it was just too hard to do. So it's the 25th anniversary of this tragedy, and let's analyze it. Let's start with the timeline of events, and then I'll tell you the official version. Through with... Uh, more recent uncoveries and why the official version was super, super suspicious even back in the early 2000s. And now it's been, well, basically basically proven to be false because, yeah, the so-called conspiracy version, again, has been proved to be way more reliable. Just as a fact, as very kind of recently it was proven that Putin actually does have body doubles because he appeared in Crimea and in Vladivostok and like, but a three-hour time difference and it's literally impossible to fly from one spot to the other on such a short notice. So let's begin. Like I said, first I'm going to give you the uh, official version, and uh, it's coming from Wikipedia, because that's the place where I could like find a total, complete kind of timeline of the official thing. But we're going to be going through that so many times that it's just a thing. Quote, <clears throat> The Estonia disaster occurred on Wednesday, 28th September 1994, between about 0.55 and 1.50 UTC plus 2, as the ship was crossing the Baltic Sea and route from Tallinn, Estonia to Stockholm, Sweden. Estonia was on the scheduled crossing with departure at 18.30 on 27th of September. She had been expected in Stockholm the next morning at about 9.30. She was carrying 989 people, 803 passengers and 186 crew. Most of the passengers were Swedish, although a lot were of Estonian origin, while most of the crew members were Estonian. The ship was fully loaded and was listing slightly to starboard because of poor cargo distribution. According to the final disaster report, the official version again, this is like I'm reading from Wikipedia for you, the weather was rough with a wind of 15 to 20 meters per second, 29 to 39 knots, 34 to 45 miles per hour, force 78 on the Beaufort scale and a significant wavelength of 4 to 6 meters, which is 13 to 20 feet. Compared with the highest measured significant wave height in the Baltic Sea of 7.7 .7 meters, which is 25.3 feet. 
Asa Makela, the captain of Cilia Europa, who was appointed on-scene commander for the subsequent rescue effort, described the weather as normally bad or like a typical autumn storm in the Baltic Sea. All scheduled passenger ferries were at the sea. The official report says that while the exact speed at the time of the accident is unknown, Estonia had a very regular voyage times, averaging 16 to 17 knots, which is again 30 to 31 kilometers per hour or 80 to 20 miles per hour. The chief mate of the Viking Line cruise ferry, Mariella, tracked Estonia's speed by radar at approximately 14.2 knots, which is 26.3 kilometers per hour or 16.3 miles per hour, before the first signs of distress, while the Cilia Europa's officers estimated her speed at 14 to 15 knots. The first sign of trouble abroad Estonia was when a metallic bang was heard, caused by a heavy wave hitting the bow doors around at 1 a.m., Again, this is the official version, and we'll be going through this. Just the official version says at 1 a.m., a monster wave hits the front kind of door when the ship was on the outskirts of the Turku archipelago. But an inspection, limited to checking the indicator lights for the ramp and visor, showed no problems. Over the next 10 minutes, similar noises were reported by passengers and other crew. At about 1.15, the visor in the ship's bow door opened and the ship immediately took on a heavy starboard list. Initially around 15 degrees, but by 1.30 the ship had rolled 60 degrees and by 1.50 the list was 90 degrees as water flooded into the vehicle deck. Estonia was turned to port and slowed before her four engines cut out completely. At about 1.20, a quiet female voice called Haere, Haere, Laival on Haere, or Estonian for Alarm, Alarm, there's an alarm on the ship over the public address system, which was followed immediately by an internal alarm for the crew, then, one minute later, by the general lifeboat alarm. Yes, I know I'm speaking fast, but it's a lot of text, as this is the version that is actually least likely to happen. The vessel's rapid list and the flooding prevented many people in the cabins from ascending on the boat deck, as water not only flooded the vessel via the car deck, but also through windows and cabins, as well as the massive windows along deck 6. The windows gave way to the powerful waves as the ship listed and the sea reached the upper decks. Survivors reported that the water flowed down from ceiling panels, stairwells, and along corridors from decks that were not yet underwater. This contributed to the rapid sinking. A mayday was communicated by the ship's crew at 1.22, but did not follow international formats. Estonia directed a call to Cilia Europa, and only after making contact with her did the radio operator utter the word Mayday. The radio operator on Cilia Europa, Chief Mate Teljo Seppelinen, replied in English, Estonia, are you calling Mayday? After that, the voice of third mate Andres Tammes took over in Estonia, and the conversation shifted to Finnish. Tammes was able to provide some details about the situation, but due to a loss of power, he could not give their position, which delayed rescue operations somewhat. Some minutes later, power returned, or somebody on the bridge managed to lower himself to the starboard side of the bridge to check the marine GPS, which will display the ship's position even after a loss of power, and the Estonia was able to radio in position to Cilia Europa and Mariella. The ship disappeared from the radar screens of other ships at around 1.50 and sunk in international waters about 22 nautical miles, which is 41 kilometers or 25 miles, on bearing 157 degrees from Uto Island, Finland, in the depth of 74 to 85 meters, which is about like 80 meters in, on average, which is 243 to 279 feet of water. According to survivor accounts, the ship sank stern first after taking a list of 90 degrees. Now, the thing is, like, uh, the ship itself was 150 meters long, so the depth of the water, which it sank, well, if it would just sank vertically, it would have been, like, completely differently 
turned and you could like see it still. But you can't. Because it's still unknown and it's still pretty scary about like what's going on there. And those things cause a bunch of issues with the official story to which I'm going to go, well, right now. Because this is Wikipedia and this is the most official that you'll get without investigative journalists popping in. Because this story is supported by French and German shipbuilders. Fun times now, isn't it? And here, here we get to the fun, if you could call them, things about the official investigation. See, there was an official trilateral investigation of the whole event by, uh, and it's still top secret, by the way. It was a joint investigation by the Finnish, Swedish, and Estonian authorities. And they discovered that the official reason for the catastrophe is that the huge waves in the storm, even though it's documented that the waves weren't huge and it wasn't a really big storm, broke off the front visor and everything uh, of the ship, and they should have been like seven times more stronger. That is why this 55-ton front that opens up to drive your cars in, that's why it broke. And that caused the automotive deck of the ferry through the ramp basically have a water flow of 20 tons per second which basically moved more tens of cars which were not you know were not secured enough and water through the ventilation shafts that it quickly spread to the various other places of the ship causing uh, the ship's kind of extremely quick flint to the right to the port side basically after the captain's orders to turn left to kind of, you know, straighten up, it moved even more and sank. And if you think about this, the next day after this, you know, when they thought about responsibility about this, the official investigation committee, GAIC, which is the Finnish, Estonian and Swedish total investigation company, stated that the responsibility for this goes to the German shipbuilding Meyerwerft. And basically, they made this thing, this uh, trilateral commission, and they studied the causes for this disaster for three years. And uh, surprisingly enough, they didn't find anything. And even though during this time, the Swedish premier, Karl Bildt, who was the prime minister of the time, uh, basically publicly stated that he will eventually get the ferry and the dead people out of the sea. They'll lift them out of the sea. He changed his thoughts eventually. Even though, like I said, it's like 80 meters below the seawater. It's just super shallow waters and you don't get massive storms there. Three weeks after the catastrophe, the Swedish government of the time decided to cover the ferry Estonia, the massive cruise boat, with uh, with a concrete wall, just like uh, you know, the, just like they did with Chernobyl. That is why I made this analogy. Even though it turned out to be technically impossible a bit later. During the works of preparation on this kind of wreck, uh, four hundred thousand tons of uh, sand and gravel were thrown upon, and the Trilateral Commission, on its own, without any jurisdictional basis stated and presented that any diving or research during this area is prohibited and you will get criminally punished for that. That is now a criminal crime. So obviously we don't have any like new photos or photographies from 80 meters of depth from Estonia. And yeah, it is literally illegal to go there and dive those 80 meters, even though people in oil rigs work in much greater depths, just because Swedish, Finnish and Estonian governments told so. Yeah. 
and the whole place was shut down even before the International Commission had stopped that investigation. Because we're looking at uh, the second largest cruise boat catastrophe in general in history, in human history, just after Titanic, in 1994. Further on, in independent research, another kind of scene showed up. The one that uh, makes all this way more complicated, because, you know... With a super huge hurry, the three governments basically decide to close down the place for investigation, and you'll, you'll go to prison if you try to die there. Basically, Estonia was not even allowed to uh, carry passengers into open sea. It was even uh, forbidden to leave the Tallinn port during the bad technical weather. However, however, it went on this last kind of uh, journey after high Swedish personnel personally intervened and after the check, the official kind of defects of the technical checkup, mysteriously disappeared after those high-standing Swedish personnel kind of stepped in. Now, isn't this fun? See, the thing is that there has been another independent investigation funded by the organization of the survivor families and the families of the victims, and they state that, yeah, the, the investigation committee just ignored blatant facts because it is literally impossible for a Baltic Sea to have a monstrous wave that breaks off something. That's number one. Number two, everything was just ridiculously stupid in the way how it was like covered up without even trying. And this is a massive, massive tragedy. Now, there were a bunch of conspiracy theories around all this situation, and I'm going to read you an article from 5th of September 2002, and we'll move through this story as it goes on, by Christopher Bolin. And this was a bit of a crazy conspiracy, but um, he claims, <clears throat> quote, New book says Russians sank Baltic ferry to prevent technology from reaching west. And he claims in his article that the new book says that this ferry which carried passengers, was sunk by Russians because it carried apparently top-secret Soviet space technology bound for the Pentagon. And this is a book by a German journalist which kind of shows this. The thing is, this looks like a totally crazy conspiracy theory, and I can't really claim, even up today, that the Russians did it. But the fact that it was almost certainly carrying something super suspicious, because 1994 is the year when the Soviet army finally left the Baltic states... And it might have carried something interesting on it, something that uh, maybe the now Russian government didn't want to fall in other hands, or some other interests. Now that's plausible. But let's get through this article, which was written in 2002, and then I'll move you to the weird things that happened, were found out in 2006, and then we'll move on forward in time. Because this is a conspiracy article, and it was viewed that way, because uh, like everything about Estonia was like, top secret, instantly it was published, and investigations and like even going there was criminalized, and not because of any law, just because government said so. This is now illegal. Done. No basis, no nothing, everything's top secret. And 854 people died there. Come on. But this is the article from Berlin. Quote, <clears throat> A recently published book points to covered U.S.-Russian joint ventures in transferring Soviet space technology to the West as being behind the sinking of the Estonia, the passenger ferry that went down while crossing the Baltic Sea to Stockholm on September 28, 1984. The book The Estonia by Jutta Rabe, a German journalist, contains the first comprehensive reconstruction of the disaster, bringing together eyewitness testimony, video evidence, and official documents. 
Rabe, a German TV journalist, has been investigating the Estonia catastrophe since the day of the sinking when she flew to Finland to interview survivors. The evidence Rabe presents suggests that on its final crossing, Estonia, a well-known joint venture operation between Sweden and Estonia, carried extremely sensitive cargo, quite unlike the usual contraband of illicit drugs and smuggled humans. Deep in the ship's hold, loaded on the trucks headed for the west, was the fruit of decades of Soviet scientific research and development in space technology. Yeah, that's a bit shady, but we'll get to that. See, the thing is, I wouldn't be reading you this conspiracy article, which everyone laughed at in 2002, if in 2016 it wasn't proven in court, officially, that this was at least mostly true. Although Rabe does not speculate about what was being transported, she points to a list of items found in a New York Times article by William J. Broad from November 4th, 1981. Broad described the technology Pentagon officials were interested in buying from the Soviet space program. Russell Zeitz from the Olin Center for Strategic Studies at Harvard University called it, quote, the yard sale land of history. Which makes sense, because Soviet Union collapses, everyone needs to leave the Baltic states and other newly independent territories, and, you know, usual theft, corruption, everything. And we had nuclear missiles stated here, and we were uh, in the forefront of that research, so... Why not have these specific things, right? An incident in the early 1991 revealed how much the United States military establishment coveted certain items of the Soviet space program. When a model of the Topaz-2 reactor, a Soviet nuclear-powered satellite, was displayed at the Washington Symposium, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, NRC, stopped it from being returned, saying it, it would constitute the illegal export of nuclear technology from the United States. It took Richard Verga from the Strategic Defense Initiative Organization, or SDIO, program at the Pentagon, the State Department, and the Commerce Department to persuade the NRC to let the exhibit go home. International Scientific Products Incorporated, the ISP, a San Jose Caliph-based group, California, presumably, I'm reading from this article from 2002, announced plans to buy one of the Soviet reactors to help the United States develop a similar system. At the time, ISP was engaged in a joint venture with the Russian company International Energy Technologies, Intertech, based at Khurchatov Research Center in Moscow. Well, Kurchatov's surname would be familiar to all of you guys who watched the Chernobyl series. Because yes, yes, we're talking about the same Kurchatov who was helping to build Chernobyl reactor and was responsible for its demise. Same Kurchatov, guys. Same Kurchatov. And uh, yeah, same thing that Legasov was, well, ahead of Kurchatov Research Center. The now defunct ISP reportedly worked with SDIO. The Pentagon had announced its intention in 1991 to spend $12 million to buy an advanced Soviet nuclear reactor for generating power in space. Leonard Kaveny, deputy director of innovative science and technology at the SDIO, traveled to the Soviet space labs near Moscow, where a team of experts tested a tiny space engine that uses magnetic fields instead of fuel to move a spacecraft. That is all bullshit. They never did that. Now, this part is bullshit. Seriously, Soviets never did this shit with magnets. Magnets are science, this is not. But this article just points to some weird things, and Soviets were really advanced in some pieces of technology, especially after Chernobyl, in the very latest years of the USSR. The advances they made in nuclear physics and how the, the reactors worked. Now they're lost forever. I miniaturized nuclear reactors and maybe some advances in gold fission might have been transported. This magnet bullshit, yeah, I don't believe in that, though. Oh, yeah, sorry, now I'm... Shit, now this episode's going to be explicit again. 
Uh, side note, iTunes for some reason paints all of my episodes as explicit anyways, even when I don't swear on them. And this is kind of weird, because the last one, the interview with Mike Duncan, got painted as explicit. I don't know why, guys, but it just happens. Hey guys, Annette here. I hope you are enjoying our new episode of The Eastern Border. As always, a big thank you to all of our Patreons. The show would not be possible without your help. If you are not a Patreon and would like to become one, head over to the Eastern Border page on Patreon.com. Please remember to also follow us on our social media, like Twitter, where we are known as Eastern underscore Border, and on our Facebook page. We also have a Discord server, so if you're interested in that, find the link in the description of this podcast. That's it for now. See you online. This podcast brought to you by RussianVoiceOvers.eu. Enjoy. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Anyway, carrying on. The amazing device necessary for space-based anti-missile programs such as Brilliant Pebbles fit in the palm of a hand and was available for less than $1 million. Also, filthy lies, really super conspiracy site, but just so you know. It's very moderately priced, Kaveny told a reporter before his visit to Russia. Verga said the price included all associated flight hardware. This kind of engine has been kicking around on paper in this country for 30 years, but never in space, Vegas said. The Soviets are actually flying these things. No, they were not. They were busy keeping their country together. Yeah, it's just, you know, I'm reading all this article for fun because this is a really depressive thing that I'm reading you. The Soviets had plutonium-238 and heat-resistant alloys completely unknown in the West. That is true, by the way. Including the one made of palladium and osmium capable to withstand temperatures to 3,600 degrees Celsius. That is also true. But no magnets. No magic magnets. Guys, Soviets did not have magic magnets, out of all the things. The Air Force was reportedly interested in the RD-170, reportedly the best liquid-fuel rocket engine in the world. Quote, the shopping spree begun by the military, end quote, soon attracted the number of federal agencies who visited the Soviet Union in the early 90s to evaluate a host of high technologies, Mr. Broad wrote. There was, however, considerable resistance to the shopping spree by the U.S. space technology companies, who strongly opposed being undersold at the Soviet so-called yard sale, exploding, according to NASA Administrator Admiral Richard Turley. And we're talking about reports of this. I still don't believe in magnets, though, but... This article points out to some very important people and their words. 
you know, it's not like some random street thug is telling you this or a kind of fucking cave rat. It's NASA administrators and all like these important people, so it carries some weight. Of course, this article makes it more sensational than it actually is. However, you should take it at least some, somewhat seriously. Further on. There are also different opinions of, at different levels of management. It's schizophrenic, one industry expert said. Middle management will talk to the Soviets who will get all excited. But when it goes up the next step, upper management is not interested leaving the Soviets up in the air. That's also the problem of the Soviet side. Middle management tries to cut the deal. Rab says middle management used joint ventures like ISP, transfer technology, and names the players. In 1993, a United States Army colonel named Alexander Einselm, who worked at NATO headquarters at Brussels, left his home near San Jose to take over the command of the former Soviet military forces in his native Estonia, which became independent in 1981, as you all know already. Einstein continued to report to NATO command from his position in the former Soviet Republic until early 1985. While Einstein probably knew about the technology shipment on Estonia and apparently provided troops to escort in the, into the harbor, Rabe told AFP she does not think he was the author of the ill-fated transfer operation. A high-ranking military attaché from the German Bundesmarine told Rabe that when he visited Einzeln in his office in the Estonian capital of Tallinn for a meeting on the day of the disaster, he asked about the sinking. That was an attack against us, said Einzeln. Einzeln, however, later denied being in Tallinn on the September 28th and told reporters, including German Spiegel TV, that he had been in the United States that day. Hours after, the Estonian chief of Estline, the company that operated Estonia, said the ferry had been attacked. Rabe explains how divers hired by the Swedish government spent hours breaking into the cabins, frantically searching for black attache case carried by a Russian space technology dealer, Alexander Voronin. Voronin owned a company in Tallinn called Cosmos Association, while his brother, Valeri, had a similar company in Moscow that traded weapons and space technology. The official divers work for Rockwater, a subsidiary of Brown and Root Energy Services, BRES, and had signed lifetime contracts obliging them to remain silent about what they did on the wreck resting 200 feet below the surface. Like I said, 80 meters. Super shallow. BRES is a subsidiary of Halliburton, formerly directed by Vice President Dick Cheney since 1995. Well, Vice President Dick Cheney at the time, obviously. Rabbit told AFP that the Rockwater was not the low bidder, but received the job by Johan Fransson, head of Swedish Maritime Administration. Secrecy, Rabbit says, was of paramount importance. According to Rabe, video footage from the official dive done during the first four days of December 1994 shows how divers frantically searched the cabins, breaking the locks to find a black leather case. And then Putin stopped the transfers. Finally, the case was found in cabin number 6130, a cabin usually used by one of the ferry's missing captains, Avo Picht. The diver read from the case. It says Alexander Voronin, does that ring any bells up there? Rabe points to a group of Russian nationalists from the Soviet intelligence agencies as being the culprits behind the actual sinking of Estonia. According to Rabe's sources, the so-called Felix group included Vladimir Putin and Ivan Ivanov, respectively the current president and current president even now in 2019, 17 years later. Have fun, Mr. Putin. We love you. And foreign minister of Russia, Ivan Ivanov, by the way, mysteriously dead. Ivan Ivanov is dead by this point. In an accident, traffic accident in 2019. No one knows how he died, he just somehow went to Chechnya and disappeared and then his body was later found on the road. Oh well, you know. Uh, probably he just randomly ran into a tree and died with all of his family. You know the usual stuff. No suspicion there at all. Why would you ask?
Respectively, the, the current president of Foreign Minister of Russia, who were strongly opposed to the wholesale looting of Soviet arsenal. The window for easy access to Soviet military secrets slammed shut in July 1998, when Putin was appointed director of Russia's Federal Security Service. Of course, he ran the FSB at some point. The Voronian company was liquidated, and the American firms that dealt with them went out of business. According to Rabe, the sinking of Estonia summed up of the book's concluding sentences. One of the book's concluding sentences. Quote, It was a perfect coup, which could have only been carried out by secret services or groups which include former members of the secret services as members, like necrosis terrorists, regardless of their origin or motivation. And you might sign this down as conspiracy theories, right? Oh, but oh boy, I have official documents that prove this more than the official theory. Well, so now I'm recording this apparently in the middle of a tornado alert because just bypassed Fourth Worth, and it's a bit crazy. I don't even know what's what's like going on here, but uh, I just don't get how you guys can live with these at all times. But it's just, yeah, fun to be talking about this whole uh, situation after you know all this Fort Worth thing happening. So what has happened is that the fund of uh, the Estonia victims and survivors, the CEA, which represents the people who suffered there, they basically, in 2016 October, sent a um, kind of a request to the Estonian government basically to open an investigation once again. And yeah, that was denied, and that was just thrown out completely because they were just totally ignored. And secondly, they managed to hire an independent German expert company, which basically, like I said, stated that the original investigation was just basically lying. And uh, yeah, the official representative of the foundation, this, this CEA thing, Leonard Berglund, when talking to Latvian journalists, told that uh, the foundation created in 1984 is to find the true reasons of the death of all those people and why the boat crashed. Berglund thinks that the International Trilateral Investigation Committee not only ignored the technical proof, but didn't even interrogate the survivors. Instead of that, during the first days after the catastrophe, they basically formulated a kind of a favorable uh, solution and favorable explanation for the guilty peoples by the following... And they worked uh, three years to prove it while hiding the really people who are responsible of this. And in this letter to the Estonian government, which also popped up this year, it is said that, uh, you know, these conspiracy theories, which I spoke about in the last part, these conspiracy theories and the explanations of why the whole thing was done for, they should be treated seriously, just like the expertise uh, analysis of the independent experts and their consequences. For example, the, again, German journalist Rabe, she basically managed to go down to the coal rack of the ship, ignoring the fact that it was completely illegal, ignoring the opposition from the Swedish government. She went there for, in the year 2000, together with the exposition of Greg Bemis, which is an American millionaire. And then she basically posted videos, this Rab, who was mentioned in the previous section of the podcast with the crazy conspiracy theories, which basically shows that there are inexplicable holes in the hull of the ship below the automobile deck, which various independent expertise committees like admitted that they are the results of the explosion. 
Besides, just after seeing there, uh, basically looking at the skeletons and the bodies left there, she looked at someone wearing an official uniform and found that there were various unrecognized bodies on the command deck and like the remains of weird clothing which were not on the ship and that apparently the captain had a, a bullet hole in his skull. Now that should be taken with a grain of salt but still it's kind of bizarre. Now Rabe thinks at this point she's bit changed her position. It's not about the space race anymore because that was just too silly with the magnetic drives like I said. But now Rabe herself thinks that the Estonia ferry was blown up because during this night to Sweden there were a, a bunch of USSR military, military technology carried there. Radioactive materials and uh, various substances of uh, biological and chemical weapon production. Now that is way more likely than any space race stuff. Because the Soviets really did produce a lot of chemical and biological weapons in our areas in the Baltics. And radioactive materials were found like recently in Belarus. I mentioned this in my previous episode. What kind of supports this theory, which is... Uh, which is the thing why I tend to believe Rabe, the decisions, is that the uh, leader of the Estonian part of the Parliamentary Commission for the investigation of this ferry catastrophe, the Estonian politician Evelyn Steppa, refused to sign the Commission's end thing in 2006, like the end decision that uh, there were no military cargoes on the ship of Estonia. And she confirmed that between Sweden and Estonia during 1993, basically a secret treaty was formed, which included the transportation of a military legacy, basically, because the Soviets were forced to move out of the Baltics at the time. And yes, yeah, Sweden would likely to be one of the purchasers of this technology, which Sweden then could later resell. Obviously, uh, the whole deal is still a state secret and we can't access any documents, so therefore this is just words of mouth only, but she's a very high representative. However, this is even more believable because the representatives of the dead Swedes of the ship state that for a long, long time, the kind of the claims that something was carried over with Estonia, like the Soviet military legacy was carried over with Estonia, was considered just rumors and conspiracy theories. However, and this is the big hit, which I believe in this, the Swedish courts in 2006, 2006, four years after that conspiracy article that I read to you, they looked at the evidence and confirmed that twice, twice, Estonia had secretly carried military cargo from Tallinn to Stockholm. One of these times, just a week before the final time Estonia went to the sea. And if you look at this, that it's quite plausible that during the night of the tragedy, there could have been an unknown cargo on the ship, which could have been the reason for this tragical chain because yeah now we have documented evidence that indeed the ferry Estonia traveling between Tallinn and Stockholm was in fact used to carry Soviet military things from Estonia to Sweden by the Swedish courts. And the most suspicious fact is the thing that, which is ignored by the official trilateral investigation, is that in the last moment on the ferry, two cargo trucks, military cargo trucks, went on board, because of whom the, the whole thing was delayed for like 15 minutes. And this fact was also treated as rumors, but so far two Swedish eyewitnesses have confirmed it, two independent ones. 
And apparently one of the cars looked like a military transport thing. And it arrived at the port facility during an escort with motorcycles shortly before the ferry was about to leave. The other eyewitness has given like uh, evidence about strange circumstances about the car and the cargo and who owned it. Both evidences state that there was a secret dangerous cargo in the cars, therefore it shouldn't be located on a common cruise liner. And one of the cargo declarations for the ship was written by hand instead of with a computer or a machine, other one wasn't located at all. This evidence, these reports, have never been investigated and were declared just stupid uh, just during the same time when the Swedish government decided to basically, no, no, it's illegal to dive down here, we're just going to all throw uh, sand on it. Important and mysterious thing which kind of concludes to this is the fact that a lot of valuable eyewitnesses are just missing completely, including the second captain of the ship, Avo Picht, which in the, this night was located on the ship as a passenger, and it was told that he somehow mysteriously survived and was, was mysteriously lost, because, you know, those cruise liners have, like, two captains, one on the way there and one on the way back. He was there as a passenger, but um, he and seven other crew members of the ship were, at the beginning, they were found, and we have, like, proof, photographical evidence of the fact that he and seven other crew members were found amongst the survivors of the ship, but then they mysteriously vanished from those lists. But that wouldn't be anything superficially wrong at that point, because people who died there and people who survived, all of that was written by typewriter or on hand, and they were, like, sent by the fax, and the surnames were named by the telephone, it was like a huge mess, and basically they were, like, written down. But, however, uh, there were, like, other people who also just appeared and disappeared and appeared again in both the surviving and the dead lists. However, the problem with Mr. Picht is the fact that, according to eyewitnesses and logs and documentation, he had never been on board. He apparently had called, someone had called in his name, and reported to the officials that he hadn't suffered in the catastrophe because he had never been on board. And he could confirm his identity as well. He was taken away from the lists, but after a few days, his name appeared there once again. However, various witnesses have reported that the Spicht, the second captain of the ship, had recognized him at least three times and with other members of the crew in other, other parts of the world. So all of this is, like, super bizarre. And this is just one of the craziest aspects of the whole thing. Because the SEA, the Survivors of Estonia Association, is the only thing in Sweden, in the Baltic States, thing that represents the survivors and the relatives of the people who survived and suffered through Estonia. And their request was not the first one. They did one in 2013. But the first time that request was denied based on the international agreement that forbids do anything in places which are considered the official graveyard of the people who died there. However, a lot of the family and relatives of the people who died on board disagree that this wreck of the ship is their final resting place because, hey, it's just 80 meters below the sea level. Why can't we get it up? It's just super simple. Oh, because it's covered by 400,000 tons of sand and gravel. 
And now their latest case in court, where they demand responsibility from French and German companies, have also been denied because the court just blatantly ignored all this new evidence and someone is very, very much not interested to find out what actually happened back then in the second largest cruise ship catastrophe on the planet Earth. The relatives of the victims of this catastrophe specifically state that Trilateral Commission hadn't really done anything and they hadn't even checked the wreck of the ship itself. And even if they had done so, they never published anything because this has been deemed top secret and you can't even go there because that's a criminal effort. And like I said, once again, the ship lies only 80 meters deep, even though it was 150 meters long. Like amateur divers dive in this deep even now, and even back then in 1984, it wasn't a difficult task for the Swedish government. And today, basically, when people do filming and everything, like in 4,000 meters deep and when Titanic is much deeper, why haven't we checked the Estonia wreck for evidence? Why hasn't this happened? Well, because honestly speaking, every documentation on this is still a state secret, both of Estonia and on Sweden. And the Soviet army was leaving at that point. They were leaving these places. And someone was the buyer, and someone was the seller, and someone was obviously interested so that the, the stuff purchased through corruption would not end up in the spot where it was supposed to go. And those dealings were clearly well less than legal themselves. So that's what we have to deal with. 854 people dead. Just because, well, our Nordic-friendly governments decided to, well, get some technological advantages. Or so it seems. It's certainly way more believable than any official theories they throw out of the deck. And you might laugh at me and my theories, right? But I currently have about 85% correctness rate. So, yeah. If anywhere else something goes awry, then if it concerns the Soviets or our region, then you always have to remember that lies are often more likely to be true than whatever the official version is. Think about it. And have a nice evening, and take care of yourself and your loved ones. See you next time from Lafayette already, and до свидания, товарищи. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The Dark Myths Void. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? 
the federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.